The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast. And do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. Each building had that energy. Obviously, the energy is created by the people in the building, but then the building lent itself to also creating this magical energy where you never wanted to leave. In this episode, we are going to hear the story of Ugo Umbawike. Ugo had the full WeWork experience. He started his journey at the global co-working space as a member in 2014 and loved working there so much that he got a job as a community manager, working his way up to managing multiple buildings, including the West Coast headquarters. A big job due to his close work with the company's top executives. He was at WeWork in the early days of hypergrowth through its height at a $47 billion valuation, all the way through to when things started to decline. He experienced firsthand what it was like to manage the impact and fallout of a narcissistic leader on the members and employees of WeWork. Ugo was caught in the balancing act of seeing the genius of the concept, the vision of the leader, and the chaos and harm that ensue when the grandiosity and entitlement got out of control. 
In this interview, Ugo shares his personal story and experience of working at WeWork. His opinions reflect his personal interactions with people at the company during the period of time he spent as a member and an employee. He is no longer employed with WeWork, nor do his opinions represent the company. So welcome, Ugo. Thank you. So happy to have you here. This entire story obviously has focused on the founder and, you know, the personalities involved. To me, what's more important is the experience of somebody who is in that system. So welcome. And I have to say, you probably have one of the most well-rounded experiences in your journey with WeWork. I do. You started as a member in the early Mm -hmm. days, then you loved it so much, you became an employee. So talk to us, paint a picture of what it was like, what these WeWork buildings were like. Why was it so electric? to be there? Great question. Okay, so I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. and I was born and raised there. I decided that I wanted to do something different with myself and not just be a townie. So I asked my cousin who lived in San Francisco if I should just work for her. She started a startup and she was an army of one. She's like, all right, we're going to the office. (laughs) This seems so nice. We go inside and we're greeted by what we then called the front desk associate. It felt so warm immediately. It's my second day in California ever. And I felt so impressed by the greeting and the building. Mm. So automatically, I thought my cousin was hiding money from the family because this place was so (laughs) nice. I was like, what is going on? (laughs) Anyway, we go upstairs to the office and everything is glass. You could see people working. There's Mm. bear tabs. There's a pool table in the middle of the room. There's TV and they're actually playing like African music in the common space. I said, this is wild. This is not where you really work. She took her keys out. She opened her office. It had the logo of her company name on there. And I was just totally impressed. I couldn't believe I was working here. And that was before I knew what WeWork was. And that was my first day at a WeWork. I think this may be the very first time I heard about a space love bombing someone. Usually it's a person love bombing you, but it was the space. It's the space. Yeah. And that's what the beauty of WeWork was. It was... Familiar, every WeWork you would go to, whether you were in Seoul, Rio de Janeiro, Sydney, Boston, or San Francisco, where I was, they were all unique but similar. And so you felt Mm -hmm. the love because you felt a community. And before WeWork, I don't even think, I'm Nigerian, and so we have our village community, Mm -hmm, but I don't think I heard that word in American culture before WeWork. All of this energy then led you to want to actually no longer be a member, which for people listening to this, a member is almost, I mean, it's a less glamorous word I'm about to use is like a tenant, you know? I mean, (laughs) member sounds more belongy, but in essence, you paid a monthly fee to access the space and use the facilities within a WeWork location. Correct. Correct? Yeah, that's a member. So then that could be any of us. Any of us could have come and paid that monthly fee, but then you actually found a job within the company. One subtle red flag in a workplace is when the employees are called community or team members or family. In a good workplace with fair pay and benefits and realistic expectations, eh, it's just a word. But in a narcissistic workplace, it can be a way to create a false sense of belonging 
like you'd have in a family, but at the same time, it may be a workplace that's toxic and triangulated. I was a member. I loved it. I asked the people at the front desk, hey, this is my resume. And at the time, I didn't know WeWork was going to expand like that because it was still very, very small. I believe I joined when we had about 20-something buildings globally. By the time I left, we had hundreds, right? It just struck me, and again, everything you're saying is it's bringing up these new insights in me. It's, it's so unusual because they were providing the space, but they also needed a workforce. And mm-hmm. in a way, you were almost like this I don't know, like this, a farm league or like a training camp where they could see mm-hmm. people swinging and playing and throwing oh, totally. and saying, I want that one and that one. Because they were actually able to see your energy in action, which no employer in the world would ever have access to. So that was really unique. So not only did you transition from being a member or a tenant into actually working for the company, it sounds like you really loved your job. Why did you love your job there so much? So we worked very hard and very long hours, but there was an energy in the building. As you said, this is the first time a building loved on me so hard as I came into San Francisco. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Each building had that energy. Obviously, the energy is created by the people in the building, but then the building lent itself to also creating this magical energy where you never wanted to leave. One thing I want to understand too, Ugo, when people work hard, you, and let's just focus on you because you don't know what other people are thinking. You worked hard. Why? What was the carrot on the stick? We're all human. I would say money. Okay. And WeWork was a unicorn at the end of the day. And the people who were working at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end saw what was formulating in this in, in this equation of community plus shared workspace that was cheap enough for the average Joe. Yeah. But good enough for a Fortune 500 company to share in the space as well. And so we worked hard because we thought we were in this unicorn company that was going to make us a million dollars. Here's what's interesting about that answer around money, because that's actually the logical thing. Certainly I was thinking, and probably everyone else listening to this is thinking like, okay, everyone's working real hard because they're making money. But what's fascinating, Ugo, is that it was a long game on the money, right? It's not mm-hmm. like you're working hard and getting paid then. So somehow the dream seemed plausible to you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that you really were convinced it was a unicorn because in a way you were, and I'm trying to think of this like a psychologist would, right? And mm-hmm. when we think about behavioral science, we think of the rat in the maze. The only reason the rat is hustling down the maze is because there's cheese and it's going to get the cheese right away. All of you were willing to say, we're convinced there's going to be a whole ton of cheese behind, you know, if we keep walking down this maze hard every day, we don't know when that will be, but we're confident it would be there. So this sense of not only confidence, but in the short term, you were in this really fun space with really incredible networking opportunities. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I'm going to use a narcissism framework again. I'm sort of, I love you, Ugo, because you sort (laughs) of brought this way. I've never thought about something like this before. We talk about how the space love bombed you, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in a way, Ugo, the job did something called future faked you. And future faking is when there is a promise like, oh, hey, you know, I'm going to take good care of you someday. Or if you just do this for me, then down the road, we're going to move here. We're going to get married or whatever Uh it is, right? uh That's what they were doing. They're like, someday, baby, we're going to get married. I'm going to have a big ring and we're going to live in a big house. So they future faked you, which is a classical part of a narcissistic relationship. Future faking, again, it tends to be what we see in a narcissistic relationship. It only works when the future faking is plausible. 
Yeah. Right. So if somebody's really down on their luck and and sort of just making it living close to the bone and says, hey, one day we're going to live in a big mansion. You're like, OK, I think you're high. That's not happening. So you're sort of looking at them sideways. That's not plausible. Right. But what we were created was something where that future was plausible. And then what was even more clever was everyone was in on the delusion. Everyone. So even if you had a moment of doubt, everyone sitting next to you was in on it. So then that, as we know, in human nature is always going to suck people back in. And when we look at traditional, just one-on-one narcissistic relationships, if a person's like, oh, I don't know, they're making these promises. If all your friends, I don't know, for example, are getting married, you're saying, oh, come on, he's great. We're all getting married. So then all of a sudden the doubt gets silenced because whatever that tribe is around you, whatever that community is around you, they're in on it. So you think like, I can't be the only one who's who's seeing this right, and all of them must be right, and then the beat goes on. You know, it makes you seem like you're the crazy one or you're not the intelligent one when a collective of people are saying one thing or believing in one thing or doing one thing. If you see the hole in the plan or you don't believe in the plan, you make yourself believe that you're actually the dumb one and everyone else is the smart Mm -hmm. one. So... With narcissistic behavior, if you have a narcissistic person that can breathe life into a story, whether it's true or false, if one person doesn't see it, then everyone thinks that one person's crazy. And that's life now. And luckily, I went through that experience, whether it's traumatizing or not traumatizing, that I now see that in everyday life. Well, what you're also talking about is collective gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Right. Usually we think of one person gaslighting one person at a time. Right? I never said that. That never happened kind of thing. But what you're talking about is collective gaslighting. And there's it is a thousand times more potent when it's collective yep. than when it's one on one, because you're thinking, OK, I can see that one person is not living in reality. Who am I to say 10,000 people Are not. aren't living in reality, right? And so, right. and that's not that's not how people work. So they're all going to think that, okay, I'm wrong. I'm getting uppity. Who am I to think this? And as you said, Ugo, going through something like this ends up being the sort of thing that sadly you have to go through sort of the loss, the anger, the grief, the trauma. But that's sometimes really... I'm seeing this in narcissistic survivors of any kind, you know, who've gone through these relationships, big or small, that they say, okay, now I get it. And no one's going to be able to convince me otherwise because I've seen it firsthand. It's like seeing a UFO. Once the aliens invite you in for dinner, you're like, no, I saw that. And you can tell me there's no such thing, but it's real. Right, exactly. It sounds that one of the things that WeWork was really pushing for was hustle. It was even if I remember in the signage that I saw and that was depicted in the programs and all of that, hustle, hustle harder, all of that. In WeWork, granted, you're already working, what, 14, 16-hour days, but what did it mean there to hustle harder? I believed hustle harder meant get shit done. Mm -hmm. No matter Mm -hmm. what that shit was, get it done, move on, and there's now another hurdle to get through. So as a community manager, we had it back in the early days, back in 2014, 15, and prior, a community manager was a sales manager a property manager, a events manager. We literally had to do everything in that building because WeWork was focused on building out more buildings. So hustle harder meant do everything and do everything in your power to 
get shit done. So as all of this is happening, you're early on, were there any red flags that were starting to pop up for you? When we started opening up buildings basically right next to each other in various cities. And the whole goal before that was to have each building open up at 100% occupancy. How can you do that when you're cannibalizing your own building that's next sure. door? It was very hard to continue the run rate that we were ex mm-hmm. experiencing before. So that was my clue. Like, I think we're growing too quickly. How is this company growing at such a fast pace? You could see a few little cracks in the current buildings, but mm-hmm. now we're opening up mm-hmm. so many more buildings. How are we going to make sure those buildings don't have the same cracks and flaws that the first buildings had? Mm-hmm. And I still believe in the company now. Like, people need inexpensive co-working space around the world. Mm-hmm. But I stopped drinking the Kool-Aid in about 2019, mm-hmm. and that's when news articles and social media and regular media started publicizing the flaws that were coming out. So interesting to hear you say this because the narcissism person in me snaps this into an individual relationship format, okay? So let's treat the entity of where you're working as a person. It's like mm. an indiv- individual person, right? So imagine you meet someone and like, oh, wow, how, they kind of seem too good to be true, but you want it to be true. Ugh, you want, you yes. like this, you're attracted to this person. I want these things to be true. Mm-hmm. So we suspend disbelief. We yes. silence the red flags because you're like, these things being true works for me. So I'm going to pretend they're true or I'm going to go with the idea that they could be true. Right. right? Not even pretend. Right. And so that idea of the high valuation and that the building sites being close together, it's really like someone saying like, gosh, this is what they do for a living. And yet they live in this really nice place and they have these cars and it doesn't add up, but right. it's kind of fun hanging with this person. Sure so, was. Yeah. So I'm just going to be like, Ignoring that for now, a little bit of a denial goes a long way. What gets interesting to me, and again, this is what we see sometimes in narcissistic relationships, is one day you see things you can't unsee. Correct. And then you can no longer live in denial. And that's when the person in the narcissistic relationship gets confused. However, now in that confusion, we might even see the risk of Mm self-blame, self-doubt, anger, anxiety. So what this was an entity doing this, right? It wasn't a person. And so a lot of people wouldn't even think of that as sort of the narcissistic abuse model, but it really fits it perfectly. Same thing happens with individual people. I mean, I'm internally crying right now for myself because you hit the nail on the, you know, on the head. It's literally the same psychology. And I actually think what you experienced and obviously many others in your position was harder because it was an entity. Once again, it was believable because there's things, there's banks, there's investors, and that you can't make that up. No. Right. Just like somebody might have nine credit cards that you're dating and you don't know that they have nine credit cards that they're slowly maxing out. You just see that they're living large and you're along for the ride. It sounds, though, you're saying that around 2019 is when your opinion on the company changed. And that's when even the rest of us who had nothing to do with WeWork were starting to even see things in the news that were making us say, what is this? It's almost like when family business started becoming public. So I guess when the media started voicing their opinions, I was like, oh, am I not crazy? Because now other people are seeing some of the things that I saw in my head, like I said, in 2014 when I was a member and not even an employee. Mm -hmm. I stopped drinking the Kool-Aid when collectively 
a lot of other people start opening their eyes. And I think, though, that that's where we see sometimes in these stories the power of the media. You know, in an interesting way, it even links back to sort of things, other movements, even like the Me Too movement, right? Where a lot of people were going through stuff and then people who felt untouchable, you know, like you could not, they were were literally bulletproof. Then the media comes along and all these people who had suffered for a long time are saying, oh my gosh, this one and that one and the other one went through this too. So I think that's where the media has a really interesting power because like I said, it's once the family business comes out into the street, all of a sudden a person might feel really vindicated saying, oh, I did see things the right way. Did the changes in the company that were happening around this time, everything's growing almost out of control and it's becoming clear it might be too fast. How did these changes in the company affect your mental health in any way? So about 2018, I did start feeling the pressure. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, when you have unattainable goals, like I said, you just put someone else to help and figure out someone will attain that unattainable goal. Now, when it's truly unattainable, it was wearing on people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then also there were too many cooks in the kitchen Mm -hmm. at that time. When we got to our height, we had about 16,000 employees. Oh, wow. It's a big difference. Very big difference. And when you have so many people in a kitchen that fits about 12 people, (laughs) it's hard to keep things on track. And so that was really making everyone feel the pressure at that point. Which makes sense. And you know what? I would guess, and I can only speculate, I always feel like the staff, the rank and file, the employees in an organization, they reflect the pressure from above, right? So it's like it all transmits Mm -hmm. down the chain. Mm -hmm. And whether it's the old saying of the fish stinks from the head down, or I just think it's that that pressure is transmitted. Correct. This was really a community system, right? So as the pressures were cracking at the top, that was being passed down. But you were not getting a clear story on what was going on. And none of you understood what those balance sheets looked like. There was no way. I was just telling my friend before this, when you're opening a building and when you're running a building and it's 100% occupancy, as a community manager, we had to be financially responsible for our buildings. So Mm. we knew the P&L of our buildings inside and out, but not of the corporation. Lack of transparency is a feature of all narcissistic relationships, whether it's in the workplace or even just two people in a relationship. Simply put, uh, narcissistic relationships feel shady. That sort of blurs the relationship even more, and it makes the self-blame, the self-doubt, and the confusion even worse because you just can't get a straight answer on anything. So in the... I guess, isolated buildings, you are drinking your Kool-Aid, you know your building is profitable or almost profitable. If your building is not profitable, you still think maybe it's just your one building that's not profitable. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you're living this truth, your own truth of, I know WeWork is successful even though my building may not be, or I know WeWork is successful because my building is successful. Yeah. Yeah. And at a time when people did not know the real balance sheet of the parent company, you can keep drinking the Kool-Aid and feel like everything's fine. In my case, that was me until I started managing our headquarters. Then I was privy to things that regular community managers were not. Sure. So 
yeah, until the media started showcasing WeWork in a negative light, I don't think the majority of WeWork employees were seeing that, except for yeah. those of us who worked in the headquarters and saw it before the media or saw it before everyday community managers in various buildings around the world. It really makes sense. And I think that's the case of many people who work for larger organizations. But in this case, it was more unique because people still, again, the future faked piece of this is going to pay out. And I believe in this thing that's bigger than me. Sure. Narcissistic relationships are smoke and mirrors. Whether it is a workplace that's spending money with abandon or an individual who has the cars, the clothes, the whole look, Narcissistic folks are the peacocks of the personality world. We often believe they have the goods because they dress and behave and look like they do. So maybe the bigger the feathers, the less trusting we should be. My session with Ugo will continue after this break. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
all these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk a little bit about narcissism, because, I mean, there's no two ways about it. And in fact, any podcast, anything I've read, all of them use that word. So is this not some sort of unique observation? That was very much what characterized leadership. And so talk to us, understanding the limitations, but talk to us about Adam Newman. What was so compelling about him? Adam Newman was a great influencer. Adam knew how to influence people truly by the words that came out of his mouth. Mm -hmm. He has energy no matter what. He's vibrant. And there's something that resonates with everyone when he speaks. I don't know if it's because he says he lived in a community and so people were longing for community. Once again, being a Nigerian, I grew up in a Nigerian community. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Boston where there's various immigrant communities, whether it's an Indian community, an Irish community, but in America, there's no American community. I never heard of that word. Mm -mm. There's no Mm -mm. community managers. Mm -mm. There's no community anything. And Adam, I think, really was the first person, in my opinion, that started this whole community thing for American societies. I think his words really inspired people, whether they wanted to be inspired by him or not. Right. I find it absolutely fascinating. We're currently in a period of history where I think we're caught in the cult of charisma, right? Mm -hmm. I think I might be the only person on the planet that when I meet a charismatic person, they might as well be ready to mug me how scared I am of terrorists. <laughs> I am literally the only person who feels that way. I am trying to convert people to the, you know, to the the fortitude of the non-charismatic in our midst, right? Right. It's shocking to me. I think Adam Newman's a case study in that, but I don't think it's unique to him right. that 
All of tech was run on the cult of charisma. Even part of the finance, certainly celebrity is run on the cult of charisma. And I honestly think that's been around since time immemorial, that mm -hmm. if we look at historical figures, mm -hmm. they were likely really charismatic. We just don't have tape of them, right? Like Alexander the Great, right? Like, yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure all of these folks were charismatic. They were good speakers. They would draw people to them. They knew how to hit the zeitgeist, the energy mm -hmm. of the time, and sell it. Whether or not they believed in it, we will never know. All we knew right. is we, they could sell a message at the right time. Right. You know, and here's the ultimate, though. In every narcissistic workplace I have ever consulted with, ever in my career, they all feel cult-like, right? That's the nature of narcissistic workplaces. There's a mm -hmm. culty feel. And these cult-like workplaces capitalize on creating this sense of community, closeness, family, belonging, and that can then lead people to accept lower pay mm. just so they can belong, as well as a willingness to ignore red flags or even be shamed, just like you would be in a family if you talked smack about your family, right? Mm -hmm. So you're very protective of that unit, and people so want to belong that no one's going to question it, right? So I think that what we were capitalized on, intentionally or not, was one of the most primal human needs, oh. which was the need to belong, yep. okay? Mm -hmm. And in that way, he sold it not only to potential members, but also to employees and even to investors. And as I look at the story, I wonder how much of this is something that mattered to the investors that they felt like they weren't getting, that they had a need to belong. And even though they weren't setting up their offices and WeWork spaces, that being a part of this, yeah, they were chasing the high of the, you know, of the money, but they were also getting that sense of belonging. And this speaks to the Machiavellianism of any narcissistic leader. They figure out what people want at the most primal level. They play on either desire or fear and they get it done. And that's what seemed to happen here. Yep. It totally happened. And like I said, humans desire community. Oh, yeah. But Americans, we didn't know that. You said you're first generation. I'm also first generation. Yep. So... Mm -hmm. Adam is born in a different country. So mm -hmm. a lot of countries have this sense of community that was yeah. missing here. Absolutely. I think, though, if you spend time in small-town America, there is community, right? Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. think that when you look at what WeWork was, WeWork is an urban company. Yeah. And so in urban centers had lost community. So that's yep. where you were going to sell it. Because if you walked into some small town in the United States, like, what are you doing? Like, we're good. We're like, good. We got, us, we got a church. We got a place where people come yep. together. I've spent enough time in small towns to say, no, community's already there. Right. They don't right. need beer taps and kombucha and like wild Friday night parties to create right. that. But by putting these in urban centers you actually hit that existential isolation and it's sold. Mm -hmm. Now, there's something that Scott Galloway said when Masa of SoftBank invested in WeWork. He said, and I'm quoting, quote, if you tell a 30-year-old he is Jesus Christ, he's inclined to believe you. When one of the smartest investors in the world valued the company more than the Ford Motor Company, then said they were not crazy enough and invested billions of dollars more, and the press loves you, J.P. Morgan Chase loves you, CNBC loves you, it is hard not to believe that their love is warranted and justified, end quote. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. I mm -hmm. totally agree. 
And once again, it takes a narcissist sometimes to create a cult-like following. Yeah. If no one believes a narcissist, you can't be a narcissist. I mean, we're talking about enabling, right? Right, exactly, right? Mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. So yeah. when you tell a particular type of person who I am a gay black male, there's a hierarchy in society mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and cis white males are at the top of that hierarchy. Absolutely. So if someone comes and tells a cis white male that you have one of the most brilliant minds and ideas ever, yeah, they're going to think they're better than every single other person in Mm -hmm. the world, and they're going to do whatever they want to do. Enablers are the army that make the narcissistic folks possible. And this story reminds us that enablers may not just be people without power, like the employees at WeWork. In fact, the greatest enablers of this particular narcissistic fever dream were the most powerful folks of all, the bankers and the investors. It's a reminder that nothing, all the smarts, all the money, all the power in the world, are enough to give a person clarity on narcissism in any relationship. It's all a reminder that anybody can be played because these rich dudes in this story really were. You know, what's fascinating is I think that, you know, charisma is sort of, to me, one of the core pillars of this story, right? How all these people who were really smart about money, who knew a lot about business, how they were all drawn in by this charisma. And I sometimes wonder how much it is that, especially in the business world, where people already have so much privilege and power, that they're drawn to a characteristic that they themselves don't have, Mm -hmm. that they have other bits of genius, right? They understand finance and how to grow money and how to manage it and all of that. But the charisma is almost a blind spot for them Mm. because, again, it's something they don't have. And I often, I sort of observe that about with Masa of SoftBank, who I think he saw something he didn't have. And it was sort of like, I want to be near this, Mm -hmm. you know, as though it's infectious or it'll rub off or simply that you admire it. You know, listen, in in a well-run world, and if the smart money would just listen, so smart money, if you happen to be listening to this podcast, please listen. Hi, hi, smart money. Hi, hi, smart money, because (laughs) here's what you want to know is that, I totally agree that it's the charismatic people who are often visionary in a way that's so grandiose that none of us, we would stop ourselves saying, nobody wants like to stay in someone's house and call it a hotel. You know, like nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants like to get into a stranger's car. So these charismatic leaders were visionary, but what the smart money again needs to figure out is a way to get the baton from that visionary person and then get the right kind of financial operation wherewithal around it. Yes, right? Exactly. So it's like, I think actually sometimes seven-year-olds have great ideas. I don't know that I want to give them a seat on the stock exchange. It's sort of like, all right, seven-year-old, you know what seven-year-olds want. This actually might be a winner, but this has happened a couple of times. Now, a couple of times the charismatic folks have gotten something over the finish line, but have still been removed as CEO. But I think that we've overestimated how much that cult of personality and charisma can actually do the day-to-day stuff of running a business. Again, charisma works great when you're first dating. Charisma is interesting in bed. What charisma is not good at is the day-to-day drudgery that's involved in running a massive company. And it's at that point, P&L statements, all of that, it's sort of like, don't show me this. This is puncturing the grandiose delusion. Yep. That seems to be something that if somehow the charismatic people and the dull, smart money people could figure out a way to play nice, a lot of people would be making a lot of money. 
It's hard. It's hard to tame the charismatic actor in that. I mean, that's true in every facet of life, right? Like if the Democrats and Republicans would listen to each other as the charismatic and the pragmatic people would listen to each other, the old people and the young people, the Mm -hmm. minorities and the majority. Yeah. But it's not like that, unfortunately. No, it's not. And you nailed it. I loved how you just said beautifully, Ugo, the charismatic and the pragmatic. It's those two groups. If you could get them into bed, but God knows they never sleep together. They never, you know, it's, ever. That's a no. <laughs> so I think it's always the charismatic and the enablers, and the, I don't know. Maybe the pragmatic people aren't having sex. I don't. I know. think. I mean, yes. <laughs> the narcissistic people create a culture that people want to believe in and people want to follow. Right, right. And the challenge is, though, that ultimately the narcissistic individual is very self-serving. Yeah. And and sort of ingrained in them is the willingness to throw everyone under the bus so they can walk off with the most toys, right? This is True. not the person who is going to, you know, sort of go down with the ship. They're going to say, give me the best lifeboat and I'm out yep. of here. So. Yep. I think that challenge is that I don't disagree with you. And we know there's a lot of work on this. Narcissism is correlated with leadership. Narcissistic people are more likely to pursue leadership. But what we also know is that toxic leadership can bring down a company. And we've seen it happen thousands and thousands and thousands of times, whether they're small businesses, big businesses, multinational businesses, it's all the same. You know, Ugo, tell me what you think. You said, I have my definition. Tell me what you believe narcissistic behavior to be. Narcissists? by my own definition, is someone who has extremely high self-worth of themselves, but they also have low regard for other people and their opinions and their feelings, which half the time is probably more accurate than that own narcissistic view. Mm -hmm. And so the problem is if we take away that, you know, what you're saying is no regard for others. So I I would say that's probably a lack of empathy for others. Mm -hmm. When Mm -hmm. you have somebody who has high regard for themselves and values themselves and thinks well of themselves and accounts for other people's opinions and input, that's just called a really healthy person. Right. right? I mean, that's what that is. Narcissism (laughs) doesn't get to get cut up. Like it's the whole package of, Mm -hmm. you know, having an almost delusional and distorted sense of self-esteem that's not based in truth, plus their lack of regard for others. And what's tricky in the story we've been talking about is the narcissistic leader at the top of this actually had some real gifts. I mean, say what you will, say what you will. But as I read the story, I'd say this person actually had a vision that really captured the zeitgeist and the energy of the time, particularly in a certain age group, in a way no one had before. Yep. I am the first one to say that then I wouldn't be self-aware if I didn't acknowledge that he really did right. see something and and he enacted it. I actually think that he was that unicorn. The problem is it's real hard to hook a unicorn up to a carriage. They just want to run free. They don't yep. want to be attached to anything. And that was yep. really it. So, Ugo, do you think narcissism is a useful quality in a leader? I mean, yeah. Unfortunately, I do think that sometimes a narcissistic viewpoint gathers the herd to come and ride with you or come and back you. Now, I could see a little bit different that a narcissist is a great leader minus qualities of a great leader. So minus the empathy Mm. of others, minus the point of pragmatism. But yeah, I think a narcissistic leader is a good thing to have prior to my discussion with you. Now talking to you, 
I think a narcissist is that great leader, but they're missing empathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I'm hearing from you, though, is narcissistic leaders are great motivators. They're Mm -hmm. great visionaries. They're great idea generators. But what they're not good is good managers. Right. You know, and they're also tend not to be particularly fiscally responsible. Right. We will be right back with this conversation with Ugo. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Ugo, again, so I'm just sort of obsessed with talking with you about this because it's just <laughs> so, I mean, you know why everything I talk about narcissism is individual, like a couple, people going to marriage, a mother, uh, you know, or a parent or a friend. But to think of it at this scale and yet all the dynamics are kind of the same. It's really, mm-hmm. it's it's so compelling. And yet it was this magical moment. So it's like that magical moment, obviously it was portrayed in films and we sort of had to go on good faith, but like the parties and the fun and the summer camp and the this and the, and the it was love bombing, right? Yeah. And just like every love bombing always falls apart on the back end. So I would love to know though, after this really fascinating journey, you've had at WeWork, What was the biggest learning experience you'd say you took away from working there? I think one of my largest takeaways was that I should believe in myself because Mm -hmm. half the time that I saw these signs, later in life, other people saw those signs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. later in life, a collective supported what I was thinking and then everyone else believed it. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. if I just stand true in my own faith and beliefs, then I will be okay. Mm -hmm. What I'm really hearing is that you learn to not gaslight yourself after working there. Yes, exactly. And you know what, Ugo, I got to tell you this. I know it was a hell of a wild ride. If you got that lesson out of this, I think the time there was well spent. Totally, because some people never learn that lesson. Yeah, it's a big one. As long as you can hold on to it, that's the key, is that is how do we let ourselves not be gaslighted? It means that you have to have a lot of the capacity for resistance. And so when people yeah. say, oh, come on, Ugo, or like, you're not being cool, or say, I hear you, I feel you, and I see, and I make, this is my, this is a reality. So I'm cool, right. goodbye. Right. And I'm going to have to set this line down. I've seen this movie before, and I'm good. I know how this one ends. I've been asking you questions for a long time, but do you have anything you want to run by me? What exactly draws people to a narcissist? Same things that drew people to WeWork. Charisma, charm, promise, hope. I think that's sort of what attracts people. But I also think that there's confidence. There's the idea of, for a moment in time, belonging to something special. That is sort of the healthy stuff that attracts us. That's the the above-the-line stuff. The below the line stuff is actually even more pernicious. And that's the stuff like trauma bonding. Some of the experience you're having is the same experience somebody had with their own rejecting parent or rejecting sibling or invalidating family system. And as an adult, there's a real familiarity there. And familiarity is very intoxicating, but also the idea that this time I can get it right. And there's a final piece, which is that, and I think that this comes up not only in charismatic leaders, but just even in one-on-one relationships, is this idea that 
The narcissistic person is often like when they're on their A game, it's like no A game you've ever seen. It mm -hmm. is like triple A, the sun only shines on you. And then they withhold it. They get distracted. They're not interested. And you're oh, forever chasing that. Like, I want that again. I want the sun on me. And I know it's possible because we had that. And that sort of backing and forthing again is part of that, is part of that trauma bond. And like I said, it, we were captured this. We were always chasing the unicorn. Nobody chases a sort of an old pony, but they chase the unicorn because they think that they, they can have it, be with it, ride it, I guess. But right. it's that back and forth between the excitement. And then when they pull away, people want that back. So they try harder and harder to win them over. So I think the fascination now is that so many people have been hurt by the people with these personalities and using this framework, people are saying, that's what just happened to me. And it's like you just said, that narcissism has these good things, if you will, and put that good in quotes, because it always has the bad things. And what okay. people are saying is, can I just have the good things? I'm like, yeah, then it's not narcissism. Not narcissism. You know, like then it's just a good person. Mm -hmm. But that rejecting part plays on that below the line sort of trauma stuff that sometimes, unless people recognize like how compelling it is to be drawn to something where we work things through. But the point of this podcast is to say, to educate people, to say these things, these red flags are real and these stories never end well, ever, never end well. There may be every so often there was that one person in that company who dumped their stock at exactly the right moment. That's no different than me driving to a liquor store right now, buying a lottery ticket, right. you know, it's the same psychology. Right. So that's luck. You know, but by and large, I have never, ever seen one of these things, these stories end well. So the key is to not walk in the gateway in the first place. Boom. That's it. That's Got why it. we're drawn to them. That clarified a lot. Good. Great. <laughs> yeah, I think that idea of good narcissism, I ain't buying it. The word has baked into it, the good and the bad. Good narcissism is simply being that rarest of things in our world, a confident, self-aware, authentic, compassionate, kind respectful, cooperative individual. And let me tell you, you want a unicorn, it's that. True. Here are some takeaways after that conversation with Ugo. Balancing our aspirations and our ideals with being able to see red flags and also protecting ourselves can be really challenging in the presence of a charismatic but self-serving leader. No matter how enthralled we are by their vision, we always have to keep checking in with ourselves on whether something really feels right. In our next takeaway, let's consider that a relationship with a narcissistic leader can be just as confusing as any narcissistic relationship, even when things go wrong. There may still be things that we valued about the experience, but it's important to remember that it's okay to admire their vision but not sign off on their bad behavior. One thing we know, and this is supported by the research, even after a disappointing and demoralizing work experience, there can still be tremendous possibilities when you join forces or continue to support and be supported by your former healthy colleagues that walk through the fire with you. And for my last takeaway, charismatic leaders can do so much harm, but not all of them are intentionally sadistic. They can get so single-minded in their grandiose pursuit of their vision for the world that the harm to other people simply becomes collateral damage for them, but it's real damage. This can be confusing for people who admire the vision or even the leader 
but who are at the same time being harmed by or watching other people be harmed by the charismatic leader's single-minded focus on domination, power, and control. A big thank you to our executive producers, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Fallon Jethro, Ellen Rakuten, and Dr. Romani Dervasala. And thank you to our producer, Matthew Jones, associate producer, Mara De La Rosa, and consultant, Kelly Ebeling. And our editors and sound engineers, Devin Donahy and Calvin Bailiff. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.